Hello and welcome to Art Monthly's talk show. I'm Chris McCormack, Assistant Editor at Art Monthly, and today I'm joined by Editor of Art Monthly, Patricia Bickers, writer, musician, and recently appointed Cubit Curatorial Fellow, Morgan Quaintance, and Strange Attractor Press publisher and writer, Jamie Sutcliffe. Jamie will be discussing Katrina Palmer's Art Angel and Bookworks project, Book and Book and Matter. Morgan will be asking whether post-internet art practices are drawing to an end. But first, let's start by discussing the Venice Biennale, where myself and Patricia returned from several weeks ago now. Uh, this should be a test of our memories, at least. Uh, uh, it's a shame that both Griselda Pollock and Sher McConnor can't make today's program. Uh, both have reviewed the the, uh, the exhibition in this month's issue. But uh, Okwe Enwes' vast uh, exhibition, All the World's Futures, is distinctively more politicized than perhaps the previous year, um, with an interest in labor, exploitation, and its production through Karl Marx. Uh, perhaps tellingly so, some comments centered on the show's dour and perhaps even hectoring tone. Um, Patricia, where do you stand in that particular uh, sort of argument, really? Well, I have to say, um, like Griselda Pollock, who began her review by saying she felt comfortable in this uh, Biennale, I have to say I did too, because these are not exactly jolly times, and the somberness struck the right note, I thought. And there were plenty of light moments as well, and tender moments. Um, I thought... um, Ashes by Steve McQueen was him back on form, the the new version of Ashes, the double-sided one about the death of a young man and his tender burial um, some years later when his remains were moved to a burial site. And um, there were lots of things to be found like that if you kept looking. There were also shocking moments, but not shock for its own sake, the kind of thing that sells Biennales. Um, And what I liked was it was demanding work. You were expected to take time. Um, Work was multi-layered, multi-part works, all anti-art fair work, if you like. Mm. Um, And that in itself was refreshing because... Many people have commented over the years as how the Biennale is beginning to resemble an art fair. And this really didn't. And that has to be good. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think this year it was a notable uh, sense of different, uh, well, different tempo in the work, certainly. Um, yeah, returning to Steve McQueen's Ashes, people may remember the Thomas Dane show that was, early, was on display early this year where they showed the first half of the Ashes film, which was uh, this guy on a boat uh, recounting his sort of life and... Yeah, rather sadly and quite shockingly, actually, in this this when I came to Venice to see him, his you know his grave being made. Yeah, it was a real, real juxtaposition of both life and death in that in that work. Um, and of course, the first film that you saw at Thomas Dane was found footage, mm. and the second film, because it was a double sided screen, was um, the new footage um, of them making the new uh, tomb for mm. for the young man who'd been shot for finding drugs and uh, he had been buried in an unmarked grave and then they exhumed him and the film was all about them tenderly making, hand-making with cement, mm. moulding this sculptural grave site and, uh, and you, you didn't know this because as you were watching it you heard the sounds of the grave site and you didn't know how did this relate to the boy on the boat so young, so full of life, but you began to feel this fear for him. Um, and sure enough, uh, it turns out two years after he used that footage, 
in Carib's Leap, um, he found out the boy had been killed. Mm. Yeah, so one of the predominant themes through the show is Karl Marx and his book Das Kapital, uh, but also a lot of uh, reflection and comment in a way upon labor production uh, and how that's manifested both in terms of uh, an artist practice in some ways, but also as a sort of more global output of all these things existing in the world. Um, also within that, this is a sense of something quite broken or sort of falling apart. I mean, the opening premise in a way to the central pavilion is the Oscar Murillo sort of black uh, sort of leathered sort of structures that hang from the sort of ceiling through to the the first sort of room which contains a sort of ladder that leads to nowhere some uh, works by Fabio Mauri that say the end in Italian and then followed by Christian Boltanski's early video of a man just coughing in blood you know as an opening gambit yeah I mean there is a sort of sense of something sort of dis- of despair mm-hmm. of things coming apart uh, of not really being yeah this sort of almost no light or no redemptive quality in some in some instances um did you did, where did you did you feel that there wasn't a balance in terms of the representation of works um i don't think there was in the curated part mm-hmm. uh Okui's main theme show that did kind of hit the same note over and over and over again but um what i was what I did find most refreshing, with the signal exception of the British Pavilion, um, most of the pavilions, the national representations, tried also to reflect Okwi's central idea. And one where I did find a redemptive... Um, it's not something we covered in the magazine. Well, there was just so much to cover. was um, a very beautiful piece in the Polish Pavilion, which was revisiting Fitzgeraldo, the um, Werner Herzog film, Fitzgeraldo. Uh, sorry, <coughs> I've got hay fever. Um, and all the problems with that film, you know, um, not only the original uh, project to build an opera house in the middle of <laughs> the jungle, but also in the film, uh, the exploitation of the native um, workers. Um, which was a repetition of the f- exploitation of them in historical time. And they decided to go, the, the name of the piece um, is, is a, um, a geographical location um, in nautical terms. And that is actually the location of a town called Cazale. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it's in what used to be San Domingue, which is Haiti. And um, Napoleon sent Polish t- troops out there to suppress a slave rebellion. And the Polish troops, who'd only joined Napoleon in order to throw off the Austro-Hungarian Empire, sided with the Africans and with the, the San Domingans, who, have, as you know, were one of the first movers in c- creating their own liberation from slavery. And um, they were made honorary Africans or honorary Haitians and their descendants still live there and so this Polish group, um, these two artists again I'm not going to pronounce their names right but Joanna Malinowska and C.T. Jasper, I don't know what his first name is, they took an opera by a Polish composer um, to this town, this village and performed it with the help of um, local musicians as well as Polish musicians and performed it in the village with chickens walking across a man on a motorcycle whizzing through in the middle of an aria. And the 
they obviously had no, any idea what was going on, as any passerby wouldn't. But the local community um, paid such respect to the performers and the performers such respect to their audience. They sang to the top of their ability. And it was an experiment. You know, what can either side get from this? Because the Polish descendants have a different name within the village. They acknowledge their Polish heritage. Now, that had a beautiful circularity and celebratory mm. atmosphere. And you were left to make of it what you would. So that's my offering on the uh, on the rebalancing, perhaps. Some yeah, I agree. I think in a, in a way, what, what was atypical this year, actually, was the pavilions seemed to offer a bit more complexity mm. in terms of that space around, let's say, national identity and reflections on that. Similarly, I thought the Brazilian pavilion had a sort of quite wonderful... Uh, work, um, where, which showed um, a woman in sort of uh, 2012 Olympic whites, you know, running through the, you know, if you remember the, them running through the streets with their torches, um, she actually was wearing the same sort of garb, holding this w uh, wonderful sort of torch, and uh, instead of going through the streets of Brazil, was going through the uh, the prison, a shanty prison outside Rio, and uh, you know you could see this sort of degenerate sort of environment, and she running through, and of course next year in 2016 is where, we, where the Olympics will be held. So I thought, um, in terms of yeah, the sense of pride or nationalism, the works that they were showing were very much more conscious this time, yes. in my mind anyway, than in previous years that I can remember. Um, also, she she got in there under false pretenses because she is actually an anthropologist mm. in a former life and she said she was going in as a social observation but actually she was making an artwork and that was nice too blurring identities um, yeah I think she said as well she didn't actually tell them that she was going to be carrying a torch no. for the duration <laughs> of the performance which slightly oversighting you know good good detail yeah there was i mean there was a lot to see i think similarly you know i, I don't know if you saw the pino show uh the punta della dogana no, with the uh jan Vo, but that, that similarly i mean that was a good counterpoint in many ways to the uh the okwe show in that it was in entirely the opposite it was just very in a way very aesthetically driven objects you know through through time you know he'd really yeah, shown a diversity of works, uh, but they included people like Ronnie Horn, Felix Gonzalez Torres, um, Nancy Spiro, uh, you know, artists like that, but done in a very loosely poetic way. Um, and it, it, I mean, I would really say if you go to Venice, do see the both of those because they do make quite an interesting counterpoint. Mm. But you saw the Simon Denny show as well. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. The Simon Denny show was, of course, uh, only explicable post-Edward Snowden's revelations, in particular about the graphics of the um, um, slides that he made public. Um, I can't quite make out where Simon Denny stands on this. Um, it was in the um, beautiful library um, which has paintings on the wall, hence you know the use of images to communicate ideas about history uh, and propaganda. Um, but also, the graphics were shockingly juvenile, at least to my female middle-aged mind. They, they were shockingly juvenile. <laughs> and these are men with such power who are moving, uh, sending these messages to each other, and these are also ways of explaining to operatives the meaning of certain um, systems like PRISM, of course, and how PRISM works. Um, 
it's just so juvenile. And this is one of the things Edward Snowden points out, that you've got 22-year-olds um, going through these haystacks, as he called it, of information. And it's quite terrifying. Um, I couldn't quite make out whether Simon Denny, he, he's on record as saying, you know, this is um, a great communication device. These images are part of our heritage and surround us. And there was almost something celebratory about mm -hmm. that. Sharma says the same. She says somehow it was stripped of the politics. Um, yet he's assembled an amazing um, show within. And, of course, Venice was itself a secret society. So that was a perfect site, the library. The fact that Venice, with its famous bocca, bocca di verita, where you would denounce people with anonymous notes fed into the mouth uh, in the Doge's palace. Um, so it, it was perfect, uh, the, the mm -hmm. location. I'm not sure. The work looked extremely complex, as digital work often does. But actually its meanings, perhaps I'm just ignorant, were yeah. quite simple, really. Um, but nevertheless... It's kind of the other side of the complexity of what Snowden was trying to tell us when you see the simplicity, frightening simplicity, of the graphics uh, and the, the level of communication between the operatives as opposed to what the information they're dealing with. That was quite frightening. Mm. More frightening, perhaps, than he intended, even. <laughs> but in a way, I mean, I think even Sharma was still, or can't, you know, she sort of picks up on... Um, the Simon Denny, but also it's an interesting counterpoint perhaps to the Hito style as well, because in a way they share a similar, or a similar language, but a similar sort of uh, take on the sort of internet as a sort of mode of being and practice. Do you want to talk a little bit about Hito's work that was on display at, at the German Pavilion? Um, well, I was very alienated by it, I have to say. Um, the German Pavilion was quite complex, and the the sort of Samizdat magazine um, collages upstairs mm. and the structure itself was impressive but the video its very slickness actually undermined the the aesthetic of the upper floor which reflects a sort of um, migrant community who are suppressed in Germany and who have created their own culture and publications that they secretly, well, what's Samistat, you know, they, they secretly circulated. So that was upstairs. Then downstairs, you have this inexplicably expensive, slick um, internet piece, uh, network net piece. And I don't know what I was, I mean, I was in a deck chair. Yeah, um, we were sort of slumbered, weren't we? Yes, we were slumbered. <laughs> it was like a playroom <laughs> for net freaks. I don't know. And you had this white geezer in a, in a black body, uh, in a gold bodysuit doing breakdancing, frankly, badly. Um, and it was one of those films that you're in Berlin, so you're going to go to those Cold War listening stations, aren't you? Again, mm. um, we've had this, you know, um, so many artists have gone there. Do we need that again? Um, I don't know. Yeah, she sort of worked with motion capture, didn't yes. she? And, and he was a dancer and she sort of mapped his body onto various other uh, well, ciphers or other kinds of other people's bodies or the notion of, uh, yeah transmography or whatever um and so yeah uh, what's the piece called factories of the sun yes uh, so this is again this idea of uh, the uh, away from nature into something far more industrial and perhaps less well less nice i suppose <laughs> <laughs> it left us both a bit blank didn't yes. I say that piece? <laughs> yes i think i perhaps i just didn't get it yes anyhow that leads us very neatly 
uh, to Morgan Quaintance's take on uh, on internet practices uh, driven um, well driven to an end point perhaps um, by the ubiquity. Um, do you want to start? I think in a way, let's start talking about the history, uh, the beginning of net practices a little bit and maybe where they've situated themselves. And perhaps then we can go into why you feel that they've sort of drifted away from their initial uh, criticality. Okay, so um, a rough pricey of the history of Internet art, I think, would probably begin in the sort of early 90s. well, let, let's say I'm going to be generalising, but let's say we could begin with Jody.org. And the reason I begin with those two artists is because I've had a number of conversations of um, uh, a number of like identified early net artists uh, about the, the group. Was it actually a group? And what about the term? And most of them sort of say generally say to me, well, actually, the only real net artists at the time were Jody.org. And we were kind of in awe of them and, and sought to sort of do a similar thing. So anyway, uh, with that short introduction basically in in the in the in the 1990s um yeah people were looking at the internet and and thinking of um as a way to use it as a medium and material for their work but not just as a kind of passive engagement with the medium but actually interrogating it looking at um its veracity as something that um maybe um is being used as a as a as a journalistic medium as well but also looking at e-commerce basically deconstructing um a new medium that people are sort of taking um, as uh, a sort of passive thing that's mm-hmm. going to help you through your life. So the way that they did that was using kind of d- quite dadaistic exercises, subverting websites, um, detouring websites, um, and also using quite conceptual strategies. Now, the reason I think that this was the case is that early web, you couldn't really have photographs or video. So necessarily, a lot of work was text-based and idea-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, so that went through its own uh, pr- um, process of being on the margins, being in the centre and then being pushed away from the centre because obviously those early net artists were uh, politicised, highly politicised. A lot of them were, were activists as well. So as soon as they got close to the institution, they were always doing things to subvert the institution. Some famous examples of people like selling their passes to Venice or documents, or I can't remember yeah. which. Um and then, so the art world slowly embraces them, but then um, the bubble bursts in like 2001, the internet bubble bursts. Um, so everyone kind of gets let go, or the yeah. internet specialists get dropped. And uh, the net artists don't really stop, they just aren't really being picked up so much anymore. And then what happens, I think, is there's a second wave uh, who don't necessarily identify themselves as internet artists per se, but are really interested in uh, popular culture and are using the internet because it's another medium that they have access to. And... Um, I think this continues right up until like towards the end of right. um, uh, the, the noughties with the introduction of smartphones. It's a kind of arbitrary pointer, but um, I think that ushers in a, a next wave of artists who um, uh, kind of can look at both of those antecedents, but really uh, are more influenced by the second wave, I think, in their embrace of popular culture, irony, and um, a kind of ap- apolitical stance. I think the second wave are more political, but the third wave is kind of apolitical. Now, in post-internet art itself, I think there's two waves. <laughs> it's just kind of confusing. And the one that I wanted to um, address. address was this one that's been sort of happening in the past four years mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's really penetrated into a kind of mainstream, into the mainstream of digital art. Yeah. Not, maybe not, it's not being collected as much as painting or reaching the same sort of auction prices, but it is a kind of mainstream of the people who are within it, commentating it, uh, curating it, um, and making it 
uh, enjoying a kind of privileged status in the art world or or basically their visibility's yeah. gone through the roof basically yeah absolutely i yeah. think uh, i mean you make some really interesting i think uh, assessments between uh, well different kinds of practices but also i can see waves between artists certainly dating from the early 2000s to now you know if you think of cornelia Solfrank, who you mentioned you know versus someone like amalia ullman you know yeah. they create interesting tensions or even you know you talk about uh, rip, uh was it stuart rips or rider rips. rider rider whip rips. Stuart whips is a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> um and you know you think of someone like that and versus yeah. you know someone even you know so many other different practices that have adopted those ideas you know you can see how the antecedents of maybe there is this thing where the politics behind which those practices have are now being made haven't really acknowledged or even involved themselves in quite the same roots of thinking yeah well i think one two things happen it's like the erasure of history so it's like a lot of times you'll meet younger artists and they'll say things to you. i mean i'm when i say you i'm thinking of arts professionals who might work part-time in higher education yeah. sometimes but you oftentimes if you're in a group crit Sometimes you'll hear this assertion that, hey, art can be anything that you want it to be. There's no criteria for judgment. Nobody really knows what art is, which is a complete falsity. There's a whole history of, mm. of positions and counter positions that enable you to, to do things that seemingly have no rules, right? But sometimes when people don't see that history, they just have the gesture emptied of the politics that initially birthed it, which is what I think happens in post-internet art to some degree. So people perform to camera or do certain things or use certain aesthetics shorn of the politics that initially birthed those aesthetics yeah you've got that lovely quote i looked uh, the one by whitney phillips uh from this is what we can't this is why we can't have nice things where she where you describe post-internet post-internet art replicates precisely the cultural logics it allegedly seeks to dismantle so it's a sense of like the complicity between yeah the, between the material and the, the comment that they're making and there's very little critical space that perhaps is being opened up between them well yeah because I mean, claire bishop talks about the same strategy critical strategy being used in delegated performance in the delegated performance of santiago sierra for mm. instance and i i i've um I, you know, I'm not, I'm really not sure about that at all. <laughs> I think uh, that that could be definitely yeah. argued with. But I think like one of the people I really wanted to talk about, or who's a good example of this difference in sort of um, approach to to, to criticality and to po uh, political um, engagement, a good example is an individual called Jonah Peretti. So in the Jonah Peretti is the owner of BuzzFeed. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, but in the in the early in the late mid to late nineties. He was identified as a net artist um, by uh, I, I can't, there's a, a world of art book which people read all the time about internet art uh, by Rachel Green. And in that book, Jonah Peretti is cited as an internet artist for two projects. One was called Nike Sweatshop. Yeah. And I think he it was a time when Nike were offering you the opportunity to customise a pair of trainers with a, with a word. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to print sweatshop on it or something or some some mm -hmm. word that would um, undermine that what That's the strategy right. that they're using. That went viral. Actually. Yeah. yeah. And then another website he did was called Black People Love Us, which was a kind of uh, a, a critical race theory satirised, um, but, but not critical race theory satirised, but racism satirised um, from somebody who's obviously ingested a fair amount of critical race theory. So this seemed to be a highly polit you know, politicised artist who was using subversion, who was day-tourning like, sort of, mm -hmm. uh, companies and, and media structures. But then, then later on, he bursts. He, he is the author of BuzzFeed. Now, this is a website that many people cite as one of the reasons that the, the web is sort of degenerating into this mush of list articles, um, uh, 
um, posts on your Facebook feed that says that say things like "I read this article and it blew my mind." Yeah, or uh, which character from Mad Men or whatever. Yeah, you are, exactly. Kind of yeah. Exactly. So it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a complete surface engagement with pop culture, which is what um, it, people are saying is having having sort of a detrimental effects on. And it delivers like, an audience straight into the commercial sector. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. So and they sell them the Nike. Yeah, exactly. Trainers. Yeah, and so, so you get a vicious circle. Yeah, and so that's I think he's an interesting case study. I, I couldn't really work it in but someone needs to do a case study on this guy's complete turnaround basically which i think is indicative of the movement itself Mm. yeah but i absolutely love what you say here and this could be any other phenomenon that we can recognize where you say the decline of the movement will be measured in inverse proportion to its increased popularity in both zero criticality fashion in lifestyle publications such as days and confused and through increased display in late-to-the-party large-scale survey exhibitions, I can't <laughs> wait. It's coming to tape yeah. soon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I couldn't name names, but I, I happen to know that people are... I mean, it's just on the cards, isn't it? There's yes. going to be huge internet oh, art surveys. Yeah. Like, mm. Well, the Tate... Tri- uh, not the Tate Triennial. Uh, the uh, New Museum Triennial. They've, mm. sort of, they've, they've uh, adopted that. Lauren Cornell, she's... she's uh, recent t- uh, New Museum shows often... Or been sort of involved with that sort of post-internet practice. Yeah, I think part of what caused me to write this article was spending time in New York, actually, yeah. and was was going into the belly of the beasts. A lot of people would say, and seeing how money just rules everything, and like um, to the detriment of depth and criticality, it just sort of doesn't really exist in my experience, which is obviously partial, but um, no- nevertheless, it's what I experienced when I was there, and I kind of wanted to talk about this. Because people might say, what's the point? We all know post-internet art is over. But nobody really analyses it in the way that I felt it should be analysed by by identifying it as a style. A style that people can be part of but then leave as well, which is why I wanted to talk, brought in the example mm. of Jennifer Chan. Yeah. Mm. You ju- you're, never, you're not a post-internet artist forever. It's just a, it's just a way of making work. And if it doesn't work anymore, then you're going to leave it, right? But then I also wanted to draw attention to artists like Ryan Chakartin, who is just on, you know, uh, this sort of um, monomania of the same thing happening again and again. And to me, it's almost like the Damien Hirst spot paintings. You you kind of know what you're going to get. You know exactly what um, sort of discourse is being hinted at. And, yeah, I I kind of wanted to call that out. Mm. I kind of wanted to uh, draw attention to it, basically. I think you should, uh, for those people who haven't had the opportunity yet to read your article... Um, Jennifer Chan, post-internet, I renounce my intellectual contributions to this colonial movement. It's been a massive ideological jerk-off. Wonderful quote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's yeah, it's a funny one. It's a funny one. Uh, uh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I also want to return to the... You talk a little bit about the internet and the ubiquity of it. If you talk, you know, the opening sort of premise of your piece is about the this uh the sternberg press publishing this book about this sort of ubiquity or how the internet has turned into this uh well something that's just almost a utility that surrounds us and that in a way has also led to this sense of this dispersal between or the, as you talk about the on-off digital cusp uh where we're in this sort of hinterland where now we're always either in or off digital yeah now i i think that's a, a fallacy also yeah and it's a fallacy that's a profitable one. Hmm. And the reason I wanted to draw attention to that is because this idea that there is no separation between off and online reality hmm. almost excuses the idea that, well, we should be on the Internet all the time. Then, if you're off it, then you're not really participating in the real world, um, which, yeah, like I say, like justifies um, 
you push it, well, it, push, it pushes you online more, which yeah. it ultimately plays into the hands of technocrats who are really wanting you to spend more time on their web portals. And the thing that's clear is that even though the web is like decentralized in structure, it's not in function because all of us, most of us only use Facebook, yeah. Google, Amazon, Instagram. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a, a very small th- collection of things. And the problem I had is that this rhetoric was was being aped by artists or by theoreticians in the field as well. And I think it was being used as a way to protect themselves uh, from critique because it's it's a way of saying, hey, our work is legitimate too. You know, just don't dismiss it because it's online, which is, that's that's valid. The problem is there's what I called an asymmetry of attention. So people are just focusing on the internet and not what's happening in real life. Yeah. And using this like, oh, there's no difference as an excuse to do that. So while people are happy to talk about um, patriarchy, white male supremacist patriarchy online or neoliberalism online or objectification online, they're not willing to talk about, you know, the the Zabladovich controversy or the fact that people at Foxconn in China are are killing them, you know, mass suicides at Foxconn in China. It, they're just or or any other sort of real world concrete things that are happening, and I think now it's time to stop in a way because we've got five more years of austerity. This is a really <laughs> horrible time. We've got a, a conservative government with people in the cabinet who actually um, the majority of them voted against equal gay rights. Mm. That, that's a mm. terrifying, including the arts minister. And yeah, yeah, including, yeah. Is that is it John Whittington? Yeah, yeah. Who's a ter- who wants to abolish the license fee? So I mean, it's like we need. Now I'm not necessarily saying artists have to tackle this, but in some ways, people who are presenting as critically engaged need to be called out in some ways. And and, and I, I just felt it was time to say, look, come on, <laughs> this isn't all that it's saying it is. Yeah, I agree with you though. It's mm. the, where theory is very lightly or thinly dressed to these subjects. I think the uh, what's the discussion you have about uh, Amalia Ullman's work, where she's in dazed and confused, uh, and she's sort of in serious states of dress. And most people who got it were women, where men were like, "What? I don't get it. She just looks hot." And this is another <laughs> thing that I've kind of noticed lately is that there's a real like, um, there's a, a real. In critical critical dialogue, there's a real kind of um, impulse to separate separate things. People can't speak for other subjects, mm. and it, there's all these small cul-de-sacs of debate: critical race theory, radical feminism. Uh, I, you know, it's like you can't really move between either. And, and some, somehow, it feels to me that this isn't really conducive to what everybody should be mm-hmm. like fighting for. In but some isn't ways. it an inverse uh, version of? Um target advertising it's you know trapping yourself in the same it's like a mirror image of target advertising if we can only speak for our target area i mean this is terrible then all dialogue breaks down all intercommunication breaks down and you become isolated like a market is isolated and and i mean i think the the problem with that what amali ullman sort of saying there I mean, what that means that me as a man, I can't, I can't have an opinion. If my, my critical opinion is somehow not valid because I'm just not getting the work due to my gender, mm. and I felt that was quite a reductive position mm. to take. Well, yeah, it's a bit. It's just idiotic. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, <laughs> 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 to kind of claim a space that I mean, absolutely, uh, there's no total anyway between mm. men and women. I mean, to say that she 
it's just a it's a banal uh, complete viewpoint of any mm. gender mm. Um, but I I mean in terms of I mean the one I, I the, the artist I you know going through your article some artists I weren't that fam- I wasn't familiar with I mean one I I mentioned earlier Cornelia Solfrank and that project that she did mm. uh, where she masqueraded or pretended to be numerous characters of, or female characters and I thought that was such an ingenious pro- yeah. pro- project do you want mm. to talk a little bit about yeah, that yeah so can I, I think oh, it was quite a while ago I can't remember the exact date of it but um, Cornelia Solfrank uh, around this is an early time in sort of net net practice netware practice um but she she was dissatisfied with again the gender imbalance in you know the art world as it as it related to net art practice and so she entered this competition for net artists um saw that there was a a lot of male nominees so far i think and then decided to she create this piece of software that would create different artists and then enable her to sort of submit work as the, all these different artists who were all female and what happened was uh, the project's called female extension and what happened was the organizers said oh it's fantastic we've had a real you know we've had loads of women uh, <laughs> apply for this competition and then still not a woman won so i just think it was a really interesting way of showing um uh, the yes, discrepancy. it's a concrete example it's, isn't it's it? a co- yeah yeah of yeah. being able to prove critically mm. in in action the reality of what it means to be a female artist in that process mm. whereas to kind of just vaguely dress up a difference through a sort of vague a conjecture of def- of gender i find less a substantial argument certainly and um, uh, just one thing i'd like to say as well quickly i think is that a lot of the problem also is to do with american criticism now post-internet art even though internet net art itself was a kind of european mm-hmm. um well, sort of pan-European development, really. That also extended into America, oh, absolutely. But then I feel that the geographical locus has shifted to New York, N- not necessarily geographically, but in sensibility-wise, because a lot of post-internet art has to be filtered through American pop culture. Mm-hmm. And um, so one of the things that I-, I felt was a problem is that the criticism that's coming out of America at the moment is so um, kind of informal and gossipy that it doesn't really do the job of critically engaging in the phenomenon of post-internet art. It just seems to, like, insult people or call people out or say, this is terrible or that's crap. And um, and also, that and one of the things I want to say is that that then doesn't extend to some of these institutions who are showing post-internet art. And that's why I use the example of um, data trackers operating on rhizome.org and the new museum. Um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No. It's all. It's all that. Yeah. Um, well, there's a lot more in uh, Morgan's piece, but uh, for the moment, we'll just draw a close for that one, and we'll return, maybe return to it. But uh, on more concrete matters, although kind of concrete, uh, Katrina Palmer and her recent book and project End uh, Matter has just come out, and uh, Jamie, you you reviewed it for us this month. Um, do you want to give a little bit about her practice, a little bit, and you know because. She is a writer primarily, but also as a, she is a sculptor too. Mm, so mm, perhaps yeah, start with that. Interesting you say book, actually, because yeah. um, I've been reading a lot of Clive Philpott recently. He's sort of exhaustively mm. you know, produced these taxonomies of what, what an artist's book is. And um, I think this, this work is a tripartite work she's, she's created as a, as a sort of response to Art Angels Open in 2013. It's comprised of these three components. You have um, one book which has been published by Bookworks, um, an audio tour which takes place on the Isle of Portland and then a radio play which is kind of very sort of Radio 4 ready I think it was sort of aired 
kind of past the watershed with some kind of explicit content, but still very tasteful. Um, but none of these kind of individual elements really kind of constitute a, a sort of nourishing experience in their own right. It's when you get to this kind of intersection between them or where they kind of bleed into each other that you you start to experience these resonances of the text in, in different ways. Um, but the thing that's kind of interesting about it is is, is the location, really. I, I was talking to the, to the broadcaster, Jonathan Meads, uh, a few weeks before I went to visit the work, and he's written on Portland, uh, which is a huge island of, of white limestone off the south coast. It's the, the Jurassic Coast. So it's this kind of insanely rich kind of resource for fossilised rock. And... Um, he just said, uh, like, why the fuck would anyone put an artwork yeah. on, on Portland? There's something about the magnitude of the, of the space that's just so kind of profoundly resonant that it's almost like a kind of misconception of, of that potency to, to address it through, through these kinds of um, approaches. Um, but the thing that's really successful about the work is just how it works kind of negatively to, to kind of skirt around um, the location of a, a huge quarry. So... Um, yeah, and it is about that physical. To me, it seems about that physical extraction, mm, about mm. taking the stone out and leaving behind what's, and it's a constant emptying out of space. A quarry is a negative yeah. space, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I guess you sort of, in a way, reading reading the quarry as a as a kind of metaphor for the limitations of of language and its kind of capacity to you know to, to communicate. Um, that there's this kind of absent centre of language. Language works through constant acts of deferral and displacement of, of meaning. So it becomes this constant sort of poetic riff for her. Um, yeah, and she sort of enables that through using the, the language of appendices and the, all these ideas of the, the back end of a book. Or the, yeah, mm. So it's, none of it is actually referring to any content. You talk a little bit about that. It, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, the, the way that she kind of does that is through a series of fictional vignettes. So you have a series of recurring characters. You have the Horrocks sisters, who are these two kind of ethereal women that live on either side of the island. Um, and they experience the island in, in I, I guess, a kind of a, a sort of mystical, fantastical way. Um, you have a, a, an ex-convict who may or may not be a murderer who's kind of glimpsed burying a body. Um, you have somebody who's responsible for monitoring the meat quality on the island. There are all these kind of tangible engagements with, with the kind of matter of, of the island. Um, but the most interesting characters are this shady bureaucratic body called the Loss Adjusters, who in some ways try to account or quantify this element of loss on the island by engaging with it sensorially. Yeah. So you have this constant sort of sensuous engagement with the stone in order to kind of recuperate something of that loss. Um, which, I mean, I mentioned this in the article, but that kind of builds up in one point to this kind of, I guess, a sort of a, a kind of rape scene in a way, a kind of sexual <laughs> confrontation um, that occurs within within the, the, the space of the quarry. Yeah, I got that far, actually. I, I, I've, I've started reading the novel, and well, it's not really a novel, but uh, the, the, the book, and I did get to the uh, the rather graphic sex scene. <laughs> how did, how did you find it? Um, I, I, you know, it's fine. I think, it, you know, I, I think it was nice, the description of the buttocks against the slate. I mean, I, I genuinely thought that was quite a nice uh, overlay of imagery and material. Mm -hmm. I mean, you definitely got the sense of the, the physical... <laughs> this is the crazy... <laughs> I just kind of, I mean, we, are 
We are talking rape here, yes? <laughs> no. It's, well, it's, it's, kind of, it's, sort of, it's a kind of... It's more, well, of, a, it's it's more a, of a group. It's a, it's a confrontation yeah. and then it, it becomes a, a kind of consensual... It's a confrontation it becomes a consensual ah, act. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely a, a kind of difficulty to it. And it's something that runs through, through all of her work. I mean, with The Dark Object, which was her, her first book produced for Stuart Holmes' seminar series for Bookworks... Um, Something that I had real difficulty with originally because she's she's a sculptor who uses language and one of the kind of recurrent themes or sort of motifs of the work is this idea that she's constantly interrogating the, the kind of space of composition. So um, I think this stems from her, her MFA at the Royal College where she's sort of in a studio space and she's constantly questioning the boundaries of, of the act of production, what, what it means to produce physical matter and always anticipating that and then kind of re receding from it, retracting from it. Um, and initially I had, I had problems with that on the grounds that I, I thought that space was a very privileged space, that it seemed very indulgent and um, I guess kind of complicitous in a way with something that I wasn't too, too kind of comfortable with. But I think the, re the, the kind of deeper you read into her work, you realise that these spaces of composition are always mm -hmm. charged in a certain way with desire or with a certain kind of gender politic. Um, and so they become kind of laboratories or sort of sensual testing spaces. Um, and it's kind of interesting the way that the language is, is sort of constantly brought up against this. You know, it's constantly sort of challenging the reader to, I guess, sort of be complicit in an act of desire that may not be kind of quite comfortable or a sexual confrontation that may not be quite sort of comfortable. I was thinking, um, um, Link, something I wanted to talk about earlier, You're talking about um, spaces and sexual confrontation and confrontational spaces. And something we didn't talk about earlier is I have to say I haven't been impressed by Christophe Bouchel's work hitherto, but his appropriation of a palazzo in Venice and turning into a temporary mosque was a very affecting and effective work. Of course, it's, they tried to shut it down, so that tells you it's effective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the police came up with some idea that it was a risk to public order, but of course that wasn't the reason. Um, and. It particularly struck a chord because, of course, the word ghetto is Italian and the first ghetto is in Venice. So the Jews were once persecuted and rounded up in Venice and they lived in one island. Um, and you can still visit it and behind shop fronts are mosques. Um, sorry, synagogues were well, Freudian. <laughs> and now we have a temporary, there are some 20,000 um, active Muslims, practicing Muslims in Venice, and they have no place of worship. Yeah, in fact, there's hardly any mosques in Italy entirely. There's yes. maybe one or two actually that's available. Yes. Mind you, I don't want to knock Italy too much because I think they've been extraordinary in their handling of the migrant worker disasters. They've been humane. Um, it's the rest of Europe, particularly Britain, who have not done their part. But, um, but Venice, as um, both our reviewers point out, particularly Sharma, has always been this nexus, this trade nexus. And the other thing I wanted to mention was the Kenyan pavilion, which, as you know, was uh, um, shocking both in, in 2013 when um, six of the artists um, were non-Kenyan and had never visited Kenya. Um, and this time, most of the artists in the Kenyan pavilion were Chinese. Um, yeah, they sort of bought, the Chinese bought this way in, didn't they? <laughs> well, there's yeah. a reason for it. Um, I'm just looking at the figures here. Um, 
the Kenyans put out their own statement that um, the amount of trade, um, the number of Chinese migrant workers in East Africa has risen sharply in infrastructure projects, investment. Um, some speculate this is, they call it imperialism too, right? sort of redux of imperialism. Um, trade has grown from $186.37 million dollars 125 million pounds in 2002 to 3.27 billion in 2013. And this is Chinese investment in infrastructure, which will eventually add to the new Silk Road that will facilitate Chinese trade. And the curator, Hassan Wario, has simply rolled over, presumably under a government directorate. He didn't come to a meeting that was scheduled to explain himself to the Kenyan artists. And they just rolled over and handed their pavilion to the Chinese. And these kinds of things are what Venice can become um, a, a hub for these ideas instead of brushing them under the carpet. And it's um, to Okwe's credit that these issues were beginning to rise to the surface and there were protests and there were um, demonstrations and people threatened to withdraw, and at least we're talking about it. But this is the second time this has happened to Kenyan artists. They've just been simply appropriated. Uh, yeah, the other protest that was happening while we were there was the Guggenheim mm -hmm. and the treatment of workers on the Abu Dhabi um, right. uh, current building uh, that took place both outside the Guggenheim project, but also some of the material uh, art labor was actually within Gulf the... Labor. Gulf labor. Gulf was in... Um, the Cordillera, um yes. as well. So you, there were these overlaps of protest yes. and so on. Uh, they, they were, I mean, yes. they were very effective in a way, actually, those pieces. I mean, this is something one used to see occasionally in the old Aperto. The last Aperto was 1993, and that was why we went to Venice, not to see the sort of old um, um, uh, white elephants showing in the pavilions, because they were usually white men in their 60s and onward representing artists you'd forgotten about, taken out of mothballs and shown in the uh, pavilions. It was, that's not why you went to Venice up to 93. You went to the Aperto in what was then just the Corderia. They hadn't opened up the rest of the arsenale. And artists there were either forgotten, like Gustav Metzger, or under 30 that you'd never heard of, first time I ever saw Pipilotti wrist or whoever. And it was exciting and it was rough and ready. And uh, they let you do anything because the walls were brick, the building leaked, the floor was concrete. It was fantastic. And then they decided that was removed and that was taken over by whoever could afford to. And so it lost all purpose really mm. and gradually melted into an art fair. And Okwe has brought it back to that. He's given it edge. He said, you know, Venice is in this extraordinary position between Africa and Europe, the Far East, and it could be the place for these ideas to be played out. Yeah, I think he does that remarkably well, actually. Um, you know, he does draw in a more political viewpoint. It's very effectively, I think. Much but it's more still so too than the, big. 
I think the, the, where it falls foul is there's too much work, mm. certainly, and it often appears cramped. And so certain works, I think, fall, they become signposts. So like Chris Marker and both Haroon Frocker, I think, really fail. Well, it, they don't They don't enliven the space. They become just uh, yeah, mo- uh, sort of signposts, signposts where we just go, Absolutely. Uh, we, we register their practice and register their thinking rather than trying to understand or experience it in the space. Uh, partly because of the density in which it's presented. So you have all of Haroon Frocky's works. Um, and you have... A, what, what yes. <laughs> yeah. on, 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 sort on, t- of, on tiny monitors. Tiny monitors, like postage stamps, a wall of postage stamps. Um, I, I, and those that are currently being digitised are left blank. So uh, oh, you, you can yes. see this. So it's a true, it's a true mm. real archive. Under construction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If it's not digital, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, and Chris Marker films. You know, similarly, they're very long. You know, he, he they're showing the longer pieces of his as well. So you know, no one's going to sit in the corner of a, you know a room. Uh, That's watch just, like sort of post-human curating. Like, yes. Who's yes. it? Who's it yeah. for? Yes. It's not for a human being. No. Is it yeah, for like, dust motes? Curating for dust motes. <laughs> okay. Just like in the room. Like. But, but it comes back to your point earlier, Morgan. That in a way, every single eventuality and interest group has got to be served. So in the end, nobody is served. It's so inclusive. I mean, I think it, it, to be to be a bit fair, actually, I think I don't mind actually that sense of being overwhelmed by material. I think it's quite nice to actually experience something where it feels like there's the edges I can't quite reach because of the material is overbearing. And I think there's some truth actually to our experience of life. Actually, that does feel a bit like that. But uh, I think, yeah, I think with those instances, there was this moment of like, oh, okay, um, you know, they were just signposts. Particularly, I didn't feel like they were very successfully installed anyway. No. Um, I enjoyed the Hans Hacker. The, he restaged yes. the information work yes. uh, from the 70s that he made in MoMA. And okay, now this is an interesting work, because tell me about this work. This is a survey work, right? Yeah, that's right. Now, see, this is funny. <laughs> I'm just jumping in again just to talk about data tracking. But, like, everyone was like, oh, this is a really interesting artwork, because it's sort of... Isn't it the idea that they create a, a visitor profile right. from this scene? Yeah. But th- that's why I was kind of... I actually was going to put that as an example in the article to talk about, like, th- this kind of... Um, work as a kind of intervention into thinking oh that the galleries are completely disinterested has no commercial interest in it mm-hmm. um to try and draw um parity you know draw a comparison between that and data tracking yeah on mm. art websites and saying like this stuff is just happening 24 7 now and being used for commercial purposes um it's not no one you know we've had an intervention that happened a long time ago we know it happens in normal galleries but it also happens online it's not a safe space even if it's like a you know um like culturally aligned to what you're yeah. into well, i think with hack, the hacker work obviously it's mm. a much more conscious engagement yeah. you know i'm not just happen to be blithely you know mm. scanning through internet web pages and the or, questions are, are quite cunning yeah and you it's very the leading question. Yes. So, for instance, it's like, uh, do you agree with uh, Russian foreign, poli- foreign policy? And so you answer that question, and it's immediately followed by, how do you feel about U.S. policy? Um, yes. So you're kind of led between, you know, yes. your your stages of maybe your prejudice. Um, have you ever bought artwork? Uh, how much have you spent on artwork? Uh, and then, obviously, more about your identity from race to sexuality to gender. Um, and so, you know, it forms some kind of snapshot, but it's a snapshot also partial to those that may be interested in performing it, too. So, I mean, it's not it's it's not an enforced one. So it's also partial to whether you're inquisitive enough to take part as well. So, I mean, I think there's certain limitations of of that. But I I enjoyed some of that. And also you talk about Adrian Piper and her work and also Glenn Ligon. I thought they were very elegant. Those two pieces placed together. Rooms adjacent. 
and uh, not for nothing one is black on white and the other is white on black white chalk on a blackboard and the mm. other is oil stick on or on white canvas and um the, that became for me the, something of a theme you know this can all be taken away sorry that's not exactly what she says um this will be taken mm. away yes and she should know because um one of the um editorially we uh, reminded people that she had in fact lost her post at um uh, her prof her she was the only female tenured philosophy professor and she lost her post at wellesley because while she was on unpaid leave in berlin she was um she discovered that um that when she tried to process her passport presumably that she was a uh, designated undesirable. I can't remember what the actual phrase was, um, but there was a red flag basically next to her name, and she protested at this. And instead of supporting her, Wellesley College uh, dumped her. So she now lives in Berlin. So uh, all will be taken away, indeed. And I was reading that personally on the day of the British election. So, yes, indeed, all will be taken away. <laughs> I just heard the result. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, it was quite a strange day mm. um, for a lot of British people, or <laughs> those connected to Britain, Britain uh, to, to be in Venice uh, and hearing the, uh, the election results. I remember, As Morgan said, yeah. five more years. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't in Venice, but one of the things um, I, I was interested in was like... Um, a lot, a lot of the objections that people are raising, or, or the talking, the dynamics of the talking points raised by the biennial, seem to, to mirror those that emerged after Okwi's documentary as well. Mm -hmm. It's almost like um, these large-scale people. I mean, they have a specific style, and that style gets enacted when they're invited to do things. So it's great to hear that it was effective in some ways, but it's almost like his engagement with what's happening at the moment is sort of dated in some ways. Uh, uh, it might not be the, the case, but some, when I saw the roster of artists that were announced for the biennial, I was kind of like, well, it's great that a lot of people are being resurrected and pushed back again. But I somehow felt that this wasn't somebody who was representing contemporaneity in some ways. They were addressing it, yeah. but not, um, not part of it. Um, but then again, when you have things like um, the New Museum Triennial, it's like a desperate try-hard contemporaneity that also misses the mark. And I just wonder... Like when when are we going to hit this point where it feels like yeah that's oh we never we never hit that it's always in retrospective but I mean is it I don't know I think I'm just interested in thinking about contemporaneity and and curating how it's represented what does it mean I, sometimes I just feel it's about heterogeneity mm. and I can't and that sort of sounds very vague but. Um, but it, yeah. is inter it is interesting, that notion of what it feels to be. Now. I mean, I even heard people say this feels like a 90s show. You know, I mean, it's strange. Yeah. It's a strange, weird realisation of what reality or what time frame are any of these works existing in. And even, like, you know, I remember talk we talked about Rachel Ripka's film uh, a few weeks ago. You know, she talks about that thing of being in the moment now and that feeling slightly always off. You know, the now being off. You know, in this moment of just being slightly off the moment, um, and that sort of awkwardness about being of the now too. So it's, I think that's a straight, it's a strange, uncomfortable sense of where we sit in every space, really. But um, I think what Okwe is doing is quite successful ultimately because he is showing works that I feel that would not have been normally shown in that context. And I think right. for that, that that does have to that's kind of what be you have to remember celebrated that it, in a way. How Venice has been. 
I mean, till now. I mean, it's been getting worse and worse and worse. With commercial galleries, the only ones with the money in, in these years of, since the crash to pay for pavilions. So whatever they want is what happens. And they've just been throwing money at the Biennale. Whereas a lot of this work was low-tech. And, mm. um, I mean, there are still studied oh, of course works there are. within that. I mean, certainly. Inevitably. I mean, Glenn Ligon, obviously, is a blue-chip artist. But yes. um, uh, we are wrapping up slow, s- shortly, but uh, we are approaching our summer deadline. So has anyone got any thoughts what they'd like to do for summer? Is there <laughs> any works that you're going to see? I know Agnes Martin has just come on. We've got Carsten Heller at the Hayward Gallery. What is the cemetery that is everyone is everyone waiting for? Anyone? I don't really have one. I'm going to Cape Town in oh, two weeks. Good. And I'm really excited to go there. Um the, like basically gentrification in Cape Town is is another yeah. dynamic. So anyway, I'm interested in that. Okay, good. Well let me just say thank <laughs> well, you to all our guests. Thank you very Patricia much. Patricia Bickers, Morgan Quaintance and Jamie Sutcliffe. Many thanks. Goodbye. Bye.